today is a glorious day and one that uh, our prayer coordinator said he aims to make it greater than Christmas for his family. And indeed, it ought to be. But I don't think it was on that first day. So as we look at the text of John, his account, um, we'll see some things that maybe are different than the other accounts that we're used to. But we'll go through the text and, and we'll see, I think, Lord, hope, I hope, Lord, help us uh, to see what uh, he desires for. So let us uh, pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your son. We thank you that he um, came to earth, that he lived the life that uh, we could not and have not lived, that he died the death that any sinner deserves, including us. That by taking on the sins of many, as was read earlier, we know that your son paid for those sins so that all who believe in him might have eternal life. I pray, Father, that that would be what we would celebrate today. Father, I pray that the joy that comes with being together as family, as eating good food, of whatever ever traditions that we have, I pray, Lord, that they would pale by comparison to the glory of your risen Son, Jesus Christ. May he be on our hearts and on our lips. I pray now that by your Spirit that you would quiet us that we would be able to hear from you by your spirit, that you would uh, help my words to be faithful, that you would help our hearts to be receptive to all that you would have for us this day. Pray that Christ would be made much of, that he would be glorified. We ask that you would do this. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, John's text opens with uh, pre-dawn, of what we call Easter, or the day of resurrection. It was the first day of the week. And uh, you have to remember, this was still a sad occasion. Um, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early because she was expecting to finish preparation for uh, the body of her Lord and Savior. Well, I guess at that point, she would call her Lord, uh, Jesus. He had died, been crucified as a criminal, and taken down and placed in a tomb she had watched at a distance to see where they had laid him. Although that night, that first night, they had covered him in spices and they had wrapped his body according to tradition or how they would prepare dead bodies, uh, he had been taken care of. But, but the way that things worked at that time, there was more work to be done. So Mary Magdalene came before dawn and what she saw well, it was shocking. The stone was rolled away. And Mary's first thought was that perhaps a grave robber had come. And grave robbery was not uncommon uh, during that time. It was a really bad offense, punishable, but it was not unheard of. What explanation could she come up with? And so she ran and first told uh, Peter and the one whom Jesus loved, the disciple, and that's John. She told both of them. And so we read that um, in verse 1, right, that first day came, first day of the week, uh, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark, saw that the stone had been taken away, and so she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken away our Lord. They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So... Immediately, 
we see that John and Peter run toward the tomb. They want to see what's happened, perhaps find the body, perhaps find some explanation. And in their running, we see that John gets there first. Tradition is that he was younger, and so he was a little bit faster. Other tradition says it was a race. We don't really know. John doesn't tell us. But we know that, that the apostle John, who was likely younger, made it there first. And, and when he got to the tomb, he knelt down. And the reason why he knelt down to peer in is that the openings to tombs at that time were about three to three and a half feet tall. And so to look into a tomb, you had to get down and look inside. And so as he looked inside, John sees the linen cloth lying there. Peter gets there just after him, and, and he doesn't peer in. He goes straight in, and he sees the linen cloths and the face cloth lying there separately. And what's he to think? What are they to think? Well, we see in the text that um, Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and when he saw the cloth lying there and the face cloth, which had been lying on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. We see something remarkable And that is that John tells us that he believed. Verse 8 says, Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and he believed. So what does it mean that he believed? Remember, they weren't expecting Jesus to have risen from the dead. The body was gone. They didn't understand the passage that we just read from Isaiah. It seems so obviously about Jesus. But John believed. We need to know that he actually believed that Jesus at that point rose from the dead. It wasn't that he just simply believed Mary's words, that someone had taken the body, but in that moment, he believed that Jesus was raised from the dead. What led him to that conclusion? We think back of all that, that John has told us about his time with Jesus. Right, John had been with Jesus He believed him, he'd followed him, and and knew that he was the Messiah. John had seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. So this isn't the first time they'd seen a dead body risen. John saw the linen cloth lying there. He put all of this together because a, a grave robber wouldn't leave those expensive linen cloths uh there in the tomb. They also wouldn't take the time to unravel the body, uh unwrap it and, and leave behind especially the face cloth, which was neatly wrapped. But perhaps more importantly, the reason why we, believe that, why we know that John indeed believed that Jesus rose from the dead is because belief is a central idea to John, especially in this chapter, but, but throughout the book of the, the Gospel of John. It's a central idea, one of the main aims and purposes of John's writing, especially the way he uses this specific term in the Gospel. In fact, we're going to see that it appears eight times in chapter 20 alone. And then we read in verse 9 that it says that they did not fully understand the scriptures, that he must rise from the dead. Right? So, so John believed they didn't fully understand the scriptures. And so what's happening here? Why does John tell us this in the text? And I think there's two important things that we should note here. Right? One, there's no Easter celebration at this point. They weren't expecting this to happen, but the first thing that I think is important for us to note is that you don't have to know everything to believe. 
anticipated. In that moment, John believed, but his, his understanding was only partial. In fact, through the gospel, we'll see where he deals with partial understanding. He didn't understand everything about the Old Testament, what it had to say. He didn't understand the passages from Isaiah, the other prophecies about Jesus. But he understood enough to believe. He believed in Jesus, and he believed that he was the Son of God. He believed now that he had risen from the dead. And I think that's important for us to contemplate a little bit. Like It doesn't take a lot of biblical understanding, biblical knowledge, in order to understand the gospel and to be saved. Doesn't take a whole lot. Doesn't take a whole lot of theology in order to be saved. If you understand that you are a sinner and that you have not and cannot live up to God's good, loving, and holy standard of what is right and wrong in your life, and you put your faith in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of your sins, the scripture says, then you will be saved. There's not a whole lot to believe. Romans 6.23 says, tells us that the just penalty for sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so, as Christians, we need to be careful that we don't place any more, uh, uh, any more requirements on salvation than our Savior does. And if you're not a Christian or um, feel like you can't be a Christian because you don't know enough about the Bible, I, I just want to encourage you. I'd love to talk to you, but I'd love to encourage you that, uh, or talk to my brother Les here. He'd love to talk to you about the gospel, right, and what it takes to be saved. Because it's believing in Christ, that he lived and died, that he paid for sins. So now, I say that, and I'm going to say something else, and you're going to say, hopefully they're not contradictory. The second thing I think we understand is in that moment of his belief, the first belief that he records in this chapter, the second thing to understand is although he didn't understand uh, didn't understand very much as he believed in that moment, he doesn't want us as readers, or as us here today, to stop at the bare minimum amount of gospel knowledge to be saved. So it doesn't take a whole lot, he said, but don't stop there. Right? By the time John wrote his gospel account, he himself had a much a greater appreciation for God's greatness, his sovereign power, his mercy, and his, his intentionality to communicate who he is and how he saves his people, and how he had planned to save his people from the very beginning. John goes at great lengths throughout the gospel to point out how Jesus was indeed the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. Right? And the more that he knew, the greater he appreciated and loved his Savior, the more he grew in his faith and love for God. And that's why we as a church are committed to declaring the greatness of God in our preaching, right, in our growth groups, and all that we do. Right? We want to help one another grow in our faith. We want to help one another grow in our love for God. We want to grow in our understanding of who he is and what the Bible teaches because that greater understanding will indeed help us to appreciate more of who he is and the great intentionality. Well, I've met Christians before who say, ah, I read the Bible already. I know everything there is to know. And it's interesting, right? When 
Uh, have you ever wondered like, why the, the people who tend to go to Bible studies or read their Bible every day, they're the ones who seem to already know a lot about the Bible, seem to already know a lot about God? Have you ever wondered that? You know, as a young Christian growing up in a church, in the church, I figured I didn't need to read the Bible for myself. Right? I heard it on Sunday. It was enough, right? Young people, how many of you think that, right? I go to church, it's good enough. I read the Bible once a week along with the scripture reader. But once I began myself to read the Bible for myself, to know God for myself, once I began to study and, and I joined a Bible study and began to dig into the word, I began to see God was much greater than I had ever realized. I had believed before, but oh, my worship was much greater. My joy in God was greater. I thought I knew God was good, but boy, I didn't know how good he was. I thought I understood that God was awesome, but I didn't know how amazingly awesome he was. And so I want to encourage you right, that there's a reason to be in the word. How much more glorious and awesome and our God truly is. We see that uh, when we are in the word. So John didn't know a whole lot, but he did believe. What he believed was that Jesus is the son. Right? He was raised from the dead. And what he would eventually learn, in fact, what we'll see at the end of, of the chapter, is that he was raised from the dead to purchase eternal life and peace for all who believe. Right? That is right, the invitation of the gospel. And so there's three things that we see in the text. The first that we just looked at was the evidence uh, of the scriptures and the empty tomb. Right? It started with the tomb but then John points us to the scriptures, and it's the Isaiah passage that we read. There's others, um, but I won't go into all of them. But the second uh, thing that John wants to point us to is then the eyewitness accounts of the risen Christ. And so starting with verse 11, we see that Mary stood weeping outside of the tomb, and she wept. As she wept, she stooped down to look into the tomb. Now, probably raises the question, why didn't John tell her? And we'll get to that, but I think the reason was that, remember, uh, Mary ran to tell uh, John and Peter. They ran. I don't think she necessarily ran back to the tomb. In her grief, she probably walked, and they may not have run into each other. There's probably other reasons. But I'll get to that in, in a moment. But... Here, Mary finds herself alone again, and she's weeping outside the tomb. And she stoops down to look in the tomb, and what does she find? She finds two angels. Now, remember that Peter and John had just been inside the tomb. But now, when Mary looks in, she stoops down and looks in, she sees two angels, and they say to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Right, there's one at the head and one of the foot probably uh, with the grave clothes in between them. The word term for wo when they use woman, that's a sign of respect. So don't think, woman, why are, you, why are you crying? It's not it, right? It's a sign of respect that these angels are showing to these women, or to the, the woman, Mary Magdalene. And I said to her, she responds, right? They've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. Remember, in Mary's mind, there's no thought of a resurrection. There's still grief. 
But then in verse 14, we see that having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Well, supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I'll, I will take him away. She's in the garden. Maybe she thought that for some reason the gardener had to come and move the body, uh, do something to take care of it. She was willing to, to take the body herself. Why Mary didn't recognize Jesus could have been that it was still dark out. It could have been that through her tears she had blurred vision. It could have been that she spiritually was blind at that point and didn't recognize Jesus. She doesn't know who these three men are. She just wants the body of her Lord back. But then Jesus says her name. And when Jesus speaks her name, immediately she recognizes her. Jesus says to her, Mary, and she turns back to him, and I'm sorry, she, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Means a little bit more than that, but it does mean teacher, and we'll go, we'll go with John's translation. It means teacher. Mary's recognition brings to mind Jesus' words from John chapter 10. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Right? It's not as if she just needed to hear his voice. She heard her name. And so when Jesus spoke her name, she recognized him. She calls him teacher. She falls down at his feet in worship. But then listen to his words in verse 17. She says, uh, he says to her, uh, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. Jesus' death and resurrection brought radical changes to relationship. Right? Mary was no longer to see Jesus as the teacher, as rabbi. Instead, he elevates her. Jesus calls the disciples first his brothers. Right? Remember, uh, originally they were his disciples, and then in the upper room they were called his friends, but now he calls them brothers. It's elevated them to a place alongside the Son. Jesus, the Son of God, acknowledges this new status of his disciples as sons of God with him. Jesus also then says to her that he is sending her to my God and your God, my Father and your Father. The message that he wanted her to bring to the disciples was one of intimacy, one of changed uh, relationship between who Jesus was and who their father in heaven was. So Jesus gives her the message. Mary Magdalene went and then told the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. It, it's very interesting that in all four of the gospel accounts, the first witnesses to the risen Christ are women. Like they all agree, they all make mention of it, that women were the first witnesses. What's interesting is that women were not considered credible witnesses, but yet that's what God did. And in, in reality, what it does for us is it, it adds credibility to the account. 
Because if this was kind of made up, they, they would have had Jesus appear to Peter and John. I mean, certainly in John's gospel, he would say, I, I saw him first. But he doesn't. It's the women. Jesus could have very easily appeared to Peter and John, but he chose to wait and appear to Mary Magdalene. Do you remember who Mary was? She was a former demon-possessed woman who had become a faithful follower of Jesus. And so now what did Jesus do is he sends her. He gives her the mission of proclaiming the good news of the resurrection of Jesus to his disciples. She heard the voice of her shepherd. She believed, she followed, and she went. It's a great honor that Jesus bestows upon Mary Magdalene. And so she takes, well, we know that she takes the, the message there, but not from John's account. I'll get to that once again in a minute. The scene then shifts, and we are then shown the disciples. And uh, this is not necessarily their, their uh, crowning moment here. Uh, but we see in verse 19 that on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them said, peace be with you. So what, what do we see? Well, we're not told how they responded to Mary's announcement, but what we are told in those few passages is that it's the same day, it's the evening, and 10 of the disciples were there. Right? Judas is dead and Thomas is absent and they're behind locked doors. They're, they're scared. Right? They're afraid that uh, the, the Jews are going to come for them. But then Jesus came and stood among them and, and said, peace be with you. And then verse 20 says, and when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. We know actually from from Luke's account, that the disciples didn't really believe Mary. Right? The credibility, uh, they, they kind of bought into maybe what, what uh, their society uh, thought was that women aren't really credible witnesses. So they didn't receive it with joy. It was only when they saw Jesus himself that they, they were glad. Right? Jesus showed the disciples his wounds, the wounds in his hands and his side, to prove to them that he is the same Lord who was with them all three of those years of ministry so that they might believe that he indeed is, has been risen from the dead. But the, that word, the words that Jesus spoke, peace be with you, he's going to repeat it three times in this passage. Peace be with you. And it's, it's more than just a greeting. It's a message of peace. That, that word in Hebrew will be a little bit more recognizable to us, which is shalom. That, that's a word for peace. Um, it's one of the key images in the, that the Bible uses for salvation. Biblical peace is more than just the absence of conflict. In the Old Testament, the word for peace uh, refers most commonly to a person being uninjured and safe, whole and sound. So a complete person, both inside and out. And in the New Testament, it is uh, revealed as the reconciliation of all things to God through the work of Christ. That's why we read in, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 19 and 20, For in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, 
making peace by the blood of his cross. So he brings a message of peace to them. And at its core, Jesus is talking about peace with God. Sin always disrupts peace. It always disrupts shalom. It separates a sinful man from God. But as the true Passover lamb, Jesus paid for sins once and for all. So he brings them peace. Christ's work on the cross brings reconciliation, reconciling peace with God to the believer. And so the barrier of sin between God and man has been paid for and the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. So when he says peace be with you, it's, primary, it's first peace with God, but there's more aspects to it. But Jesus will then go on to give the disciples the mission of declaring God's message of peace and forgiveness of their sins. He sends them to the world. This is kind of a John's version of the Great Commission, but it's given here right away, and it's only given to the 10. Verse 21b says that, As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. This is a powerful image. Right? Just as God the Father sent the Son, Jesus, into the world to bring peace and forgiveness, Jesus is now sending his followers into the world to proclaim that gospel. Right? Connected to the mission, the Holy Spirit then is given to empower them and to give wisdom to declare God's um, God's condemnation of sin and his offer of forgiveness. And I should note, right, that we, the, the way that the, the text is structured, the, the language itself is used, that the actual forgiveness is not really, God isn't going, well, if you forgive him, I guess I will. It's not how it works. Uh, the structure of the language is clear in the Greek that the actual forgiveness of sins is God's. It's God's purview. Right? And, and the believers are God's ambassadors. Even today, we as the church carry on the work of Jesus. Right? He came to save, and he is the righteous judge. And he invites us, just as he invited those uh, disciples, to participate in that mission and carry his authority out as we go. And so with each added detail, Jesus Truly, we see that Jesus truly is the Son of God who was raised from the dead to purchase eternal life and peace to all who believe in his name. So just as Jesus sent Mary to the disciples, he sends the disciples to the world to, to declare this peace. And these are the evidences that John presents to us. First, of the empty tomb in the scriptures, the eyewitness accounts of the risen Christ, and then the third Maybe the most powerful from the ways John has written it is the testimony of overcoming disbelief. Testimony of overcoming disbelief. The narration shifts once more to focus on Thomas. He wasn't there. Thomas wasn't there that evening. Verse 24 tells us that Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We've seen the Lord. Sounds familiar. Mary said the same thing, but they didn't believe him. Anyways, but he said to them, unless I see his hands and the mark of the nails 
and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. This is strong language. Very strong language. What do we know about Thomas? Well, I'm sure his reputation is that he is a doubter, right? If you're the phrase someone's being a doubting Thomas, this is who they're talking about. But I don't know that it's fair. Tradition has that, well, I should say, Gnostic tradition has that he looked just like Jesus. And so people got the two confused all the time. We don't know that. That would be hidden knowledge. But we do know that he was twin and probably had a twin. And so as some people in my family are known as the twins, right? I mean, it just, it's a reputation that will follow you probably for the rest of your life. But he's, I think he's the only of the twin uh, who is a disciple, at least at this point. And he's called out by name just, just a few times in John's gospel. But most notably, I think in chapter 11, this was uh, back in Jesus, earlier in Jesus' ministry, Jesus had told his disciples that they were going to go back to Judea because Lazarus was dying. In fact, we learn in chapter 11 that, that Lazarus had already died and Jesus knew it. But the disciples were like, it's really dangerous. I don't think we should go. That's a paraphrase. But then in John eleven eight, 8, the disciples said, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? In other words, Jesus, let's be reasonable, right? They want to kill you. Why don't we just stay here? We can take a break. Then in John eleven fourteen through 16, Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. Once again, John is focused on belief. But let us go to him, Jesus said. And then in verse 16, so Thomas, called the twin, Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us go that we may die with him. Thomas was serious about his faith. I bring it up because Thomas was not just a perpetual doubter. Right? He wasn't looking for a way out the whole time. He believed in Jesus and he followed him faithfully enough that he was willing to even march toward his death. But his response to the testimony of the other disciples was strong unbelief. He did not believe. Unless I see in his hands, I will never believe. There's no evidence that Jesus appeared to them during the following week, but it was one week later that the disciples were in the same, possibly the same place. They were all together again. The doors were still locked. This time Thomas was there. We read in verse 26 that although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your fingers here. You see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. What we see is that Jesus doesn't rebuke Thomas for his unbelief. He provides for him the proof that he needs to believe. Thomas's doubt was no more than the doubt of the others, Right? John doubted Mary's testimony. 
until he saw the grave closed for himself. That's why he went to the grave. Mary doubted and didn't recognize Jesus until she heard him speak his name. The disciples doubted until they saw Jesus with their own eyes. And so now Jesus comes to Thomas and invites him to believe based on his own encounter with Jesus. Thomas' testimony is remarkable. Thomas responds, answering, my Lord and my God. Now this seems like simple words to us, but they carry a lot of weight. Thomas' confession was one of, of powerful change in his life. He went from declaring that he would never believe to declaring that Jesus was his Lord and his God. It's more than just a passive agreement. It's more than, than believing that Jesus just actually rose from the dead or maybe that he was a historical figure. Believe that he was a real man that could be seen and touched, that he was more than even just that. Thomas's confession was strongly personal. My Lord and my God. See, in that moment, I believe everything changed for Thomas. Everything in that moment that Jesus had said before, he realized was true. That he really was the Son of God. There were no more doubts. Jesus was indeed God. Think about my own coming to faith in college. I grew up going to college and, I didn't grow up going to college. I I felt like I did, I was a bad student. all felt like a knock. I grew up going to church and uh, I was in Sunday school, uh, which I, we don't have Sunday school, but right, I, I was in Christian education every week, right? I knew all the Bible stories and I know I've told this story before, but I knew so much from my growing up that I passed my seminary Bible content exam, which is pretty impressive because a lot of my peers didn't pass and they had studied the Bible. I, on the other hand, just went to Sunday school. At any rate. But I knew all these stories, but I, I didn't believe myself until I remember one day the gospel had been clearly shared with me by a friend. And all of a sudden, it was as if the light turned on. It was as if, not that the dominoes fell down, but that they all stood back up. And I looked and I began to realize, wait, everything that I'd learned in Scripture about Jesus was true. And it completely changed my life. It radically changed the direction that I was going. It radically changed my affections. It radically changed my allegiance. He wasn't just my parents' God. He was my God. He wasn't just my parents' Lord. He was my Lord, one that I would sit at the feet of and want to listen to. It's the scriptures right, that, that, that I became hungry for because I wanted to know more about this Jesus. This is what John wants you to know, wants us to know, wants that intimacy for us. And he shows us in Thomas. And yet in verse 29, he says something even more remarkable. Jesus says to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. He's talking about us. 
He's talking about everyone who would come to know saving faith in Christ after Jesus left. Jesus tells Thomas that you actually don't need to physically see Jesus to believe him. In fact, he calls those who believe without seeing blessed. We don't need to feel like we're second class just because we didn't see Jesus, just because we weren't able to walk physically with him. Instead, he calls those who believe even today as blessed if they have believed and not seen. And then as John concludes this chapter, it's almost as if he lets us see just for a moment the scene continuing to unfold, but, but he takes down the volume. Right, we can't hear what they're saying anymore, but we can, we can still see for a moment before the curtain closes. And John writes, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. See, Jesus' words and John's account invite us to respond. He calls us to respond to this gospel, right? The evidence of the scriptures and the empty tomb, we're called to respond. To the eyewitness accounts of the risen Christ, we're called to respond. To the testimony of Jesus overcoming the disbelief of Thomas. The reality is that Jesus is the Son of God, raised from the dead to purchase eternal life and peace for all who believe. And so I ask you, do you believe? Do you believe? I mean, that's the question that John is really asking us. Jesus invites you to respond to his offer of eternal life and peace with God. And if you do believe, are you moved? Are you moved enough to run to the feet of Jesus, to worship at his feet, to do all that you can to know how much greater he is than, than you know now? We have an eternal God who is an eternally, infinitely great. We shouldn't think that we've got it all figured out. We should spend our lifetime knowing him in greater ways so that our joy might be increased. And does your testimony of God's transforming love in your life drive you to run and tell others of this good news? Because that's what John did. That's what John is doing for us here today. And I think it's a challenge, one that we should answer to. Christ is risen. I'll try it one more time. Christ is risen. Let me pray. Father, what a Savior that we have. What a testimony of your goodness and your love for us. It was not enough simply that Jesus poured out his life for us, but that he poured out his life for us and he shows us himself that he invites us to come and be part of who he is, to have peace with the Father, to have peace in our hearts and our lives. Father, he invites, we're, we're so grateful that, that you invite us to be part of your family. You are no longer simply a, a distant teacher, but an intimate God. Thank you, Father, for the work of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that, that today, this week, even this year, Father, that you would move in us, increase our joy in Jesus.
Increase our desire for Jesus. Increase our desire to tell others of Jesus. May he be our greatest treasure, and may we share it freely with others, both on this Easter as well as the rest of our lives. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.